Hello and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sober Dave. I'm going to be talking to some incredible guests over the next few weeks, all of whom have made the decision to look at their relationship with alcohol and take steps towards a positive change. My guests are all at different points in their journey, but all have powerful and uplifting stories to share. And that's why I hope you find each episode a valuable source of inspiration and insight. My sponsors for season three of One for the Road are the amazing Rock Sober, a brand established in 2017 and led by brothers Sean and Lee, who are both in recovery and on a shared mission to inspire and support recovering addicts worldwide. Injecting rock and roll into sobriety, Rock Sober offers merchandise and accessories to inspire and empower its community of sober badasses. The boys have recently launched a new range of alcohol-free beers which are taking the market by storm. Every beer purchased will help Rock Sober on their mission to support and inspire more people in recovery. Their message is clear, you don't need alcohol to have a good time. So let's all rock sober and remember the good times with Rock Sober AF Drinks. My guest today on One for the Road is an Australian women's arm wrestling champion, a Brazilian jiu-jitsu champion, three times bodybuilding competitor and a best-selling author and TV personality and she also crushes watermelons between her thighs. She is also one of the loveliest people I have ever met. Please welcome Courtney Olsen. So hi Courtney, how the devil are you? Hey Dave, hey. (laughs) I'm blessed. I haven't slept at all because I'm perimenopause, but you know, hashtag stay grateful. I'm great. Thank you. How are you, sir? I'm good. We're on different time zones, aren't we? So it's early in the morning for you and it's in the evening for me and it's pouring down with rain here. I hope you can't hear it. Shocking, shocking. Because you're in Las Vegas, right? That's right. The sun's out. I mean, I was actually sweating yesterday. I don't know if it's global warming or living the dream in Las Vegas or what, but I'm not complaining. Well, for someone that hasn't slept, you look mighty fine to me. So, oh, well, thank you. Yeah. I might not have pants on either. So there you oh, go. Well, last time Boom. I saw you, you got me to take mine down. So <laughs> it's a good start. You have that influence, don't you? <laughs> that's right. That's right. With a rock soba. That's, that's how we connected. And I, I was like, I didn't know until after we left that you were the sober date. And we were Instagram friends already. Well, I'm quite so. shy, really. So I, I keep. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I that was my vibe straight away. I was like, God, this guy is a super introvert. My God, how does he do it? <laughs> <laughs> so when we chatted, when we had a coffee in that, I know there's a yeah. lot more to you than this huge character. I saw real vulnerability in you. So I thought it'd be really, really lovely thing to ask you onto my podcast and chat about things, where, what happened to you and where you are with your life now. So, and I generally start at the beginning. 
start from right where it began as a child. Would you be okay talking about that? Absolutely. And I'd just like to point out, I'm super grateful for my English husband because if it wasn't for him, I would need <laughs> closed captions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I'm picking up everything that you're laying down because some people don't have that gift. It's a, it's, and I don't. The gift of cultural integration, it's not a gift of mine at, at all. So, but um, I'm just enamored with your accent. That's probably why I married a Brit and just want to pay respect to your fine country before we start. Oh, that's lovely, Connie. Thank you, darling. (laughs) You're welcome. So, yeah, starting out from a kid. Is that where we're at? Yeah. Yeah, cool. I grew up, so my mom is an alcoholic. She's in recovery, you know, but at the time, none of us had any idea. You know, we just thought, we, I thought she was a bad person that needed to get good and, not a sick person that needed to get well, you know, and I don't have one of those stories where, you know, I was left with a parent that, you know, didn't have running water or a stable house to live in, you know, but at the end of the day, growing up with a severe alcoholic as a parent is detrimental to our health, regardless of, you know, you went to a a private school and everything, you had food on your plate every night, or you were living in a sewer, you know? So, um, yeah, it was, it was a lot of uncertainty and, you know, um, my parents were uh, hated each other, you know, they weren't violent, but there was always a lot of throwing of things and, um, you know, just a lot of hostility. So, uh, you know, I still carry a lot of the uh, traits from being a people pleaser and hating rocking the boat. You know, I just hate confrontation, with a capital H and, you know, I know that all comes from, from there. So by the time I got to uh, junior high, you know, my parents had divorced when I was like in the fourth grade or something, went off to a new school, um, was bullied a bit. I wasn't a, a big, big girl, but I was husky. You know, I don't know if you were familiar with that word, but chubby, husky, okay. big bones. Yeah. You know, yeah, and, bones. Um, you know that one. Yeah. You know that one, you know, what's yeah. up. And uh, we'll get to that part of the story where I come to find out that actually your country loves big legs. But as a child, I absolutely hated my body. And I remember the first time I saw Kate Moss, speaking of your country again, Mm -hmm. and seeing her in a magazine while my mom was tanning in a tanning bed and um, seeing her legs and seeing her Calvin Klein ad. And she was like standing on one leg with one leg kind of bent up in her hip pocket. So she was standing like a flamingo and you could see her collarbones were sticking out and just so, so skinny. And I saw that picture, that black and white photo. And I was like, that's it. Like I want to look like her. And that became my new obsession, pun intended, because I believe it was an ad for obsession (laughs) perfume Mm. uh, or cologne, whatever. And, um, her legs, you know, are like the size of my forearms. Like <laughs> it's just wasn't going to be possible, but that was what I latched onto. And that became my focal point really. So, you know, going through elementary school and getting bullied. And then finally my mom um, fell in love with a dope grower and moved out into the, the hills 
because I'm from a part in California, Northern California, that's like the Amsterdam of North America, you know, Humboldt County. And so she was, went out into the woods with him. And um, at the same time, you know, my grandparents and aunts were getting ready to contact CPS and be like, look, you know, you need to go live. She needs to be with her father. And so at that time I did moved in with my dad. And then all of a sudden you've got a new family, um, two new stepbrothers, a stepsister, you know, and I'm, um, just coming into my body and I absolutely hate everything about it. Cause I was called Sasquatch and, mm. you know, um, I'll just, just constantly, um, prodded out for having big legs. And then my sister, stepsister, who's one grade above me had giant, man, she had double D's in like the sixth grade. And I was in the fifth grade when we, you know, first got moved into the same house together. And I mean, I, I was still rocking. I wasn't wearing a shirt, you know, I'd like, (laughs) I didn't even, I'd like two nipples. Like I just, and I'm, I'm from, you know, the country and I've moved to the city from a small little tiny town, uh, growing up as a tomboy to now living in the big city of Eureka, California. And, um, you know, I'm, everything just changes. And as a kid, we really don't realize like how much of this stuff has an impact on us, you know, being a part of a new family, feeling abandoned, um, you know, and, uh, it, that's just where everything started for me. And I turned to, uh, counting calories. So by the time I'd started junior high, you know, I, um, and, and after having a couple of years of being severely bullied, like I'd come home and fucking cry every day after school, you know, people would never think that today because of how loud and boisterous and confident I am, but man, I was a doormat, an absolute doormat. And, um, so by the time I got to junior high, I, you know, was, uh, on the outside, the exemplary kid, you know, was the ASB president and, you know, in the school band. And I was determined to be the first female president of the United States. That was my, that was my goal. But on the inside, all I could think about was how much I hated my body. And really it was me, you know, trying to control something else that, you know, cause I had no other control in my life with my mom, you know, being completely out of control. And, and now I've got this whole new situation, whether it was bowling, this whole new situation that I'm living with a new family. And, um, so calories was something that I could control. And so I started counting calories and, you know, that lasted through junior high. And then by the time I got to high school, um, I went down the path of bulimia and anorexia and what was anorexia and bulimia. And then, by my junior year, so 11th grade, I forget what we refer to that over there, but in the 11th grade, I, um, you know, got pulled out by a counselor and they're like, look, why'd you do it? And pulled me back in and started addressing, um, eating disorder issues, if you will. And then shortly after I discovered methamphetamines. And (laughs) that was like the Holy grail Mm. for me. And that was my, my senior year of high school. And again, I was the ASP president, captain of the cheerleading team, started the first girls golf team, was at a private Catholic high school, um, was on the Eureka City Youth Council 4.0 GPA, like just an example, you know, just an angel, like um, just an absolute angel. So I went the entire year and got away with it. So it was very functional and um, got to the end of the year finally. And again, a teacher called me out on it and said, well, do you want to see 
a drug counselor or do you want us to tell your parents? And of course I'm going to say, I'll see a drug counselor. And so I went and saw the drug counselor and he said the same thing, you know, that the eating disorder recovery lady said, so why, why'd you do it? And I was like, of course I want to lose weight. You know, I want to, I want to be skinny. And, and mind you, I know I don't look a day over 21, but I'm actually 40. So this was right in the, in the nineties when we're talking, you know, size zero size two was where it was at, you know, and, and everything, the rage was like the thigh gap and all the rest of it. So, and the drug counselor said, great, I have an amazing proposition. And, um, he said, I, I know this guy, he's a mentor. He's an ex heroin junkie. He's a golden gloves, former champion, and he's married to a nun. Like what could possibly go wrong? Uh, he's got a boxing class. And I said, oh, okay, wow. All right. And at 17 years old, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, okay, maybe this is why I threw away my potential scholarship at Stanford. Um, you know, I've pissed away all my academic career and this is supposed to be my, my calling. I'm supposed to be a world champion boxer. And then I can warn other young girls about not doing drugs because I went through our dare program, which is like drug abuse resistance education, which is shit clearly. (laughs) And so I, uh, I knew just to say no, I heard Nancy Reagan, you know, but it, uh, the, the need to be thin, uh, was so much more important. And, um, anyway, I said, yeah, great. So I went off to his class and the guy was 72 and I was 17. And he said, look, I want to have one, I want to have one more prize fighter before I retire. And he took a liking to me straight away, you know, and for those of us who, uh, don't learn assertiveness skills and are seeking attention from outside sources. This was like, I mean, like Christmas Eve for me. Oh my God. Somebody believes in me. Somebody wants to turn me into a world champion. You know, I didn't know that my ego was severely bruised and this was like the new Holy grail. And, um, so, you know, the first couple of classes I could tell that was, it was not, a great situation. He was very gropey and, you know, all the rest of it. And, uh, so when he invited me over to his house to watch some tapes and order some equipment, my gut was like, yeah, I knew something wasn't, it wasn't, didn't feel right. But you know, when you're 17 and three days clean, um, you don't make great decisions. So the next week I went over to his house and pulled up and had that same feeling in my gut and ignored it. And got there, and sure enough, the guy had a, a, a sifter cup full of cognac. And um, at that point, I never drank because I didn't want to mess up my high. You know, all yeah. of our, our older drug dealing boyfriends would always try and get us to drink, and we never wanted to. You know, we wanted to stay up and draw stars and not mess up our high. Yeah. So uh, I thinking like, great, this guy's supposed to be my mentor. You know, I didn't know that. Uh, alcohol is a drug period. Right. And I didn't know I was just, this is just replacing one thing for another. Um, cause at 17 and talking to a drug counselor, you know, they give you a little plastic chip with a joker on it and introduce you to some, some concepts, but we're not deep diving here. Right. Yeah. So I took a couple of drinks. He was also smoking a joint, which again, where I grew up is very common. And I'd never really smoked pot at that point either. Um, I had once and I hated it. Uh, cause I just ate everything in the house and was super paranoid. And so took a few hits off his joint. And the next thing I knew 
I woke up and this 72 year old man was inside of me and at 17 years old, you know, it just, and being only like a few weeks clean if that, at that point, it was, it was horrifying. And I got him off of me and, you know, he he was like, what's wrong, baby? Like the way he was talking to me made me feel like this was normal. And I, I got out of there um, super blazed and got in my car and, and drove off. And from that point though, I had created a story because he had never called my house. You know, this was a, before the time of cell phones yeah. and he never paged me. I had a pager. Um, I'm sure you remember those. <laughs> I do, yeah. He never, yeah, he never paged me. And I thought, okay, I must've led this guy on, you know, this, this was my fault. I took the drink. I shouldn't have smoked. Um, I was probably flirting with him, you know? So that incident there is what really pushed me down a a dark hole, you know? So I went off to a state school at Sonoma state. And, um, at the same time too, oddly enough, I had a woman inadvertently shave my head. (laughs) One night when I was spun out, I tried to bleach my hair myself and fried the shit out of it. And, um, you know, going off to a new school, I was like, all right, I need to try and fix this stuff. And bless this woman's heart. She didn't speak a lot of English. And I wound up looking like curious George. So off I go to a predominantly gay university out of all the California state universities, which I wasn't aware of. And I brought my rainbow flag with me because I love rainbows, you know? Uh, And I had this big rainbow flag up in my dorm room. And this is when I started becoming interested in the gym. You know, I'd always been into um, wanting to be muscular as well as being thin, which is kind of strange. But um, I created a a new obsession of going to the gym and drinking. And this is where I really kicked off my alcoholism. You know, I was, um, I started when I was 18 and it just progressively got worse. And I had no idea that I was just walking straight into my mom's shoes, you know, because at this stage she was still drinking. She'd followed me down to school. So then we started drinking together and just became so toxic. And I would every, I would black out every night practically, you know, I mean, I would drive drunk literally every single day and night and, you know, drinking screwdrivers in the shower at 10 o'clock in the morning, I would wear Halloween costumes to class in the middle of December, you know, just, just an absolute asshole. And because I had so much trauma and pain from what had happened and I didn't tell anybody about it you know, I converted it into an alter ego instead. And a lot of people, you know, I've seen my viral videos of crushing watermelons and stuff. And I have a big KO tattoo on my shoulder. And that's when I got that tattoo was when I was at school at that point, because they're my initials, right? Courtney Olson. And so I still held on to this idea that I was still meant to be a world champion boxer. And I even went back and trained with this guy in between my freshman and sophomore year which is shocking, you know, but he knew he wasn't going to ever be alone with me again. And I would avoid his advances and stuff, but you know, it's so mind blowing to think like, wow, as a young person, you really thought that that was a good idea, you know, and you somehow thought that that was your fault. Um, but I got that KO tattoo and that is essentially who I walked into. And for the next almost 10 years, I was that bitch, 
Mm. You know, I would get blackout drunk and be trying to fight an 80 year old woman with a walker at a Kinko's because she was looking at me sideways because I had on a mini skirt with my ass cheeks hanging out. Yeah. You know, I'm like, what? You want some of this bitch? You want to <laughs> fuck with me? Like, I, just in a rage. Right. Yeah. And I, I just had no idea. Um, I, my, my grandfather um, had developed a, a brain tumor and had a year to live. Um, that was another incident because we were quite close that caused me to, you know, go even harder. And at one point a counselor brought me in and, and said, Hey, you know, what's going on? Your grades have really slipped. Um, we've got a lot of stories of you in class being disruptive. And cause you know, I'd go in there with a coffee mug full of a screwdriver of those, you know, 50, 50 vodka OJ and it wasn't coffee at nine, 10 o'clock in the morning. Mm. And, um, you know, she, she had introduced me to, uh, she, she recommended rather that I read this memoir called drinking a love story. And, um, I remember reading it and thinking, yeah, I mean, sure. She's older, you know, I'm, uh, 19 at this point and then 20, this really doesn't apply to me. I mean, like I, I party a lot, but I'm, I'm not like that. And so anyway, from there, look, I mean, I could tell you a thousand stories, you know, I, um, had nearly died with a friend, you know, she, she and I were, were driving home up to Eureka one weekend to go to the club. <laughs> and, uh, she, we, we got halfway. And, and since we left at like 10 o'clock in the morning, we have these, this drink here called Carlo Rossi, which is like a gallon sized jug of really crappy wine. And we had polished off one of those after driving two hours and stopped at my mom's place, which was like an hour South of where we were or two hours South. And, um, she was at work. And so we drank another one while we were there. And then by that point I started to black out and I handed her the keys and off we went. And then she passed out and didn't negotiate a turn and missed a giant redwood tree, clipped the side wing mirror. And we flew off an embankment and wound, you know, all the windows blew out and we wound up like within half a foot from another tree directly center in front of the car. You know, and you'd think these moments like this, you'd wake up and be like, holy shit you know, you're covered in blood. Like this isn't, this isn't normal. This isn't good. And my first reaction is we got to get out of here. You know, um, <laughs> like we can't get caught. And sure enough, we, we did. Um, somebody had pulled over and right when we were getting ready to drive off the, the cops had pulled up and my friend went off to jail and got a DUI and I got sent off to my mom and, um, you know, I think she gave me a Xanax cause I was hyperventilating and yeah. crying and laughing and crying and laughing. And, you know, so, um, just, just stories like that story after story after story. And, um, I finally got to a point, um, you know, I'd gone to rehab when I was 21, tried to do that. And I just still couldn't accept that I was an alcoholic and an addict. I just, I, couldn't wrap my head around it, you know? And by that point, you know, what got me there was, I mean, I had to flee a state was doing like the tweaker shuffle of writing checks and cashing them from like dead people and all just all sorts of dodgy ass stuff, you know, um, selling drugs, driving around with a shot, the sawed off shotgun. Um, uh, I had bought a low rider. Like I really thought it was hardcore, you know? <laughs> so uh, you know, rehab and then you get out, you get 90 days, you go back, 
And then I started drinking again. And I mean, so many stories and it was just this vicious cycle. I mean, at one point, Dave, I even got addicted to Robitussin. You know, I was a um, general manager for 24 hour fitness. And again, on the outside, we can look so well put together and, you know, people just, and that's what makes people like myself so dangerous because I can talk my way out of a paper bag, you know, and, um, I'm, I'm great at flirting when it comes to the authorities and, you know, still be semi-functional. And I remember getting sick and I won't go into too much detail because this is how we share ideas sometimes, you know, and that's how you gotta, you gotta be mindful, especially when you're talking about eating disorder recovery to, you know, it's really easy to slip back into that. Um, but I, you know, had gotten sick and realized like, wow, Robitussin really kills my appetite. And I mean, and then I started drinking like a bottle of that a day at least and did that for like four months. You know, it, it was, it's just wild to me to, to see how that underlying driving force of not being comfortable in my own skin pushed me to so many limits, you know, and by this point, uh, I had slept with my God. I mean, I would probably be in the triple digits, you know, I would screw my professors, um, married men, you know, some girls like just whoever would pay me attention. I'd be dating three, four guys at a time and not tell about the other one and just a complete player. And, um, I didn't realize that, you know, after, uh, uh, you know, sexual assault, it's very typical to act out. Right. And, um, just building up, building up more and more negative self-esteem and resentments. And, um, it's just went on for a super long time and, uh, finally hit rock bottom. Cause then of course I started smoking meth again and drinking. So that turned out like to be a, a very scary situation, even though I was holding down a job, I was the internet sales manager for like eight car dealerships <laughs> people would show up and I'm, I'm shit faced, you know, I'm like, Hey, let's go for a test drive. And it's crazy that, you know, I can laugh about that today. And I forget sometimes, you know, when I hear other people who would be applicable for say Al-Anon and they're sharing stories of like a best friend or a partner that, you know, are just to them horrific. And to me, I laugh because I'm like, Oh yeah, God damn. I did that too. You know, cause we're recovered you know, we're recovered. We can laugh at that stuff, but to, to people who are getting strung along through this, you know, they're like, how could you possibly be laughing right now? This isn't funny. You know, that's, that's absurd. You know, it's not funny that you were driving drunk in a blackout. I mean, I, I, there wasn't a lot of times I was in a blackout. I was definitely perked, but, um, just absolutely unacceptable behavior. And, um, finally got to a point where I had like four felonies hanging over my head, which I was innocent. All right. I'm just putting that out there, <laughs> but that was enough for me to more or less hit a rock bottom. And I finally, you know, got clean off meth and sober. And, uh, 90 days later, um, I hurt my back wrestling and, uh, cause I had discovered this muscle fetish underground industry where these men were, obsessed with big, powerful, strong women, which is a whole nother story in and on its own. And like three quarters of what my book is about, but, um, I hurt my back wrestling and then I picked up narcotics because that wasn't my problem. You know what I mean? Right. That wasn't my problem. As long as it wasn't meth and as long as it wasn't alcohol, then why I was all right. 
And sure, um, that I, I, I did that for a couple of years and maintained it. And then after, well, if you want to say maintained, but you know, I learned how to doctor shop again. I was cook, you know, taking pills with my mom because she also got sober at one point and went to rehab and then, um, had some injuries and then walked right, right back into her shoes, you know, and started chewing up pills. And then it went from like two a day to chewing up 10 at a time. Um, and with the industry that I was in, you know, um, which was, is quite fascinating, but there was a lot of times where I would be on edge. Cause you know, you're traveling all around the world, meeting strange men in hotel rooms and picking them up and carrying them around or choking them out with your legs. And, you know, it can be, that can be stressful, <laughs> but it was good money. So I had something to justify, right. Cause we can justify anything till the cows come home as alcoholics and addicts. And so, um, I continued to do that. And then of course that I was introduced to oxy Oxycontin, which over here in the States is a massive epidemic. You know, I, I don't know what we, the equivalent would be over there. Um, but it's basically like legal heroin, you know, and, um, I did that for six months and it got up to about a dollar a milligram, which was about 80 milligrams a day. So spending about 80 bucks a day. And I just finally hit a spiritual rock bottom this time around, you know, and I'd started going to meetings again. Cause I'd always like dipped in and in and out. Right. I dip in and out and I knew that I had to go because I didn't want to die, but I was not doing what was suggested. I hated you. I hated every fucking person in the room. Yeah. I'd hear shit like self will run riot. And I'm like, what is this? A, an eighties hair band? Like, what are you people talking about? Um, just absolutely fought it tooth and nail. Do you know, it's interesting. It's interesting that I'm literally glued to your story and i've got all these things running around in my head about all the stuff that you've done up until that age and i'm trying to work out <laughs> what's beneath that and when you say it was body image and that and it's kind of coming across to me as i being angry at the world mm. you know really angry at everything and, and when you said then i hated them i hated you that kind of confirmed it is that how you felt yeah, absolutely. I'll let you say that, you know, I, because it was whenever I drank and used, right. I slipped into KO. I slipped right back into that persona of, you know, you don't know who the fuck I am, bitch. You better recognize yeah, yeah. like I'm, and it was just a protective mechanism, you know? And it's funny cause I've, I covered up the tattoo, um, with my girlfriend, for those who are listening and aren't seeing a visual, but it's a big mural of Prince's face. And she just started tattooing. So some people are like, is that David Bowie? Some people have asked me, is that a tattoo of you? I'm like, no, bitch, it's Prince. Come on. But you can vaguely or faintly yeah, see the can. And Do you know what? I've, I've yeah. got um, Betty Davis on my leg. And someone said, <laughs> oh, is that Christine Agliera? And I'm like, are you serious? <laughs> Oh my goodness. Yeah. It's uh, it's shocking, but yeah, I was super angry mm. and, you know, to see the person that I have become today is, uh, you would never, ever think for a second. And I forget, I mm. forget how bad it got. I forget about that person who I was because, you know, I've got 12 years without a drink and we'll have 12 years clean and sober, right? Mm. Like for going by, you know, 
rituals and whatnot here um, in June of next year. And I'm getting to that point where, you know, thoughts start creeping back in, which is totally common, but it's getting to that point where I'm becoming a little too lackadaisical with my recovery. Mm. And, you know, it's at that point where people go back out so often because we forget how bad it got. And it's like, the older I get, the more I need to sink my teeth into what we do because, you know, um, it's, it's, it's right there, even though I, I talk about it and I post about it a lot and I'm very vocal in the community and, you know, my memoirs out there. I mean, there's no stone unturned, or as I like to say, no stone unturned in that book. I mean, I'm talking about blacking out and taking a shit in my friend's bathtub and then wiping my ass with his girlfriend's white robe and waking up the next day to go out for the California highway patrol field test, still drunk and seeing the shit in the bathtub and thinking it was my friend's dog and yeah. just like, you know, becoming horrified and saying, Oh my God, there, Oh, that's my underwear over in the corner. You know, like yeah. once you face the, the stuff that you've done and, and working through the, the, the steps and there's, you know, many different ways to, to stay and get to get and to stay sober. But for me, it was really getting in there and, and doing the work, you know, and once you make your amends and I still feel like there's half of a house to clean out and I've done a half-assed job on this stuff, but you know, it's, it's worked for me this far, but I'm getting to that point now where it's like, all right, it's time to, to dive even deeper and mm. to start pulling stuff apart. Like it's a never ending journey. It's like Brazilian jujitsu, you know, you'd be a black belt and still be learning about new things or a new way to do something. And, um, it's kind of how I look at recovery where it's like, my gosh, you know, I, I still have all of these programs and not realizing that from ages zero to seven, right. That's when we build a majority of our beliefs about ourselves, And most of those are limiting. They're negative. Mm. And, you know, we're in that theta brain state where it's like a dreamlike state and it, we can't differentiate between right or wrong, good or bad, black or everything's in black and white. And so, you know, we create these programs and then they just run subconsciously and we're not consciously aware of them. And it's like, you know, I still to this day find myself, even though, yeah, I'm clean and sober, I've taken away the drugs and alcohol, but I, I am still miserable half the time, you know, even though from the outside, if you look at social media, it's like, oh, wow, this girl, a lot of people think I'm rich. I'm like, no, I know, but we're, we're, we're all the same, you know, like, yeah, yeah. it's interesting what you said in the beginning about this alter ego. And I, there were two Daves, there was the yeah. drinking Dave in the pub and there was a drinking Dave at home. And the guy yeah. in the pub was this friendly, confident bloke, always had a nice shirt on. I never really got too trashed in a pub, really. As yeah. soon as I left the pub, I went home, out come the liters of vodka, out, I blacked out, passed out, you know. Right. And then the next day, go in there, nice shirt on, you know, that kind of thing. And, and what comes across with you, Courtney, is that everything's chaos, like in, in your younger life. So I can yeah. really understand how you needed a like a program like 12 steps. You needed structure in your life for it to work. Yeah. So yeah. I, I didn't go down that path myself, but you know, I can see how you need that structure and it's it's work for you, isn't it? But you're right as well what you say, you you can't be lackadaisical, which I love that word, by the way. Yeah, a hundred percent. You know, and I it's interesting because what I do today, you know, um well, to give you like the good part of the story, um, you know, and you can always give me the wind up symbol. I haven't 
a clock in front of me and I could talk for hours. <laughs> it's funny. Like you still self-centered biatch listening to the sound of your own voice, but no, it's, you know, it's a good story because, uh, I, I like to hear about people overcoming adversity, you know, and I like people to know that we are phenomenal people. Mm. And when we do recover, we do amazing things. And, you know, and, uh, my, I finally got, clean and sober detoxed off of oxy. And it was probably the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. And of course I forgot about how hard it was, but six months later, you know, I, um, am getting married. And as, <laughs> I, I met, met a man while I was on tour wrestling in Australia and the rest was history. You know, we got married four months later and it was funny. I remember when I was working with my sponsor, cause this was about the time that I finally, you know, started taking recovery seriously. And, you know, this, this is the start of my stint, which has now led me to almost 12 years clean and sober. And so, um, you know, being, being out there, uh, and then meeting my sponsor and she said, wait, you got married after four months. That's the most alcoholic thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> and I was like, you bitch, how dare you? You know what I mean? Not even realizing like what, what that even meant, even though I'd been in and out of the rooms for so long, it was, it was interesting. I just didn't absorb anything. Like even the amount of times I said the serenity prayer, it wasn't until I went to go get it tattooed on my arm that I was like, oh my God, this prayer is about acceptance. Are you serious? I've been saying this shit for years mm. and I never connected consciously to the words that were coming out of my mouth, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, so anyway, I told my husband, I said, look, I want to start talking to women. I want women to know that there's a man out there who is willing to pay $400 an hour to worship her calf muscles when she's probably left the house and she thinks she's fat. Cause growing up, Dave, I could never get boots to go over my calves and I hated my legs. Right. So after discovering this muscle fetish world, which is almost unbelievable, really, to be frank, I mean, Louis Thoreau did a documentary, a short episode on it at one point. And I actually, if you can see behind me on the wall there, I've got some um, giant post-its up and we're producing, we're going to be producing a documentary, but in a different light because the way Louie did it and the people who were willing to be on camera, it was a very small group of people. And it just was not a great representation, you know, cause I see, I, I would see men of all genders, all backgrounds, all socioeconomical statuses. It wasn't just, you know, so to speak weirdos. Right. And this was really my first look into, wow, the world is not what we think it is. And everybody is wearing a mask. Yeah. And, you know, even though you see me today and I'm, I'm talking solely about women empowerment, but I actually started out kind of in a men's right activist space because I would sit with these guys and I'd be like, look, there's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing wrong with you for liking strong, powerful women. All the while, I was still like not happy with my own body, you know, which was super interesting because on the outside, again, it was like I was ripped up, but it was never ripped up enough. I'd walk around and feel my abs and, you know, this recovery thing, it's, it's been such an up and down journey, right. Where you think, gosh, I'm been clean and sober for six years, but now I'm walking around making sure I can still feel my six pack after I just had some freaking, you know, low fat frozen yogurt. Like what, what's that about? So, um, I told this to my husband and I guess, you know, it planted a seed. Uh, he then got a job as the CEO of a national rugby team, 
you know, which is like our American football here. It's a big deal. And I came on as the assistant strength training coach as a volunteer position to the under 20 team. And uh, a reporter had found out that I had had, you know, videos on the internet and I had some topicals photos and right. I hadn't had my boob job yet, which I then had taken out. That's another story. Um, you know, so nothing I wouldn't want my grandma to see. And my clips were, you know, of me smashing the watermelon that went viral and me arm wrestling men and laughing at him. Ha ha. You got beat by a girl because that's a fetish, right? Like cis stuff that it was not my definition of porn, but this reporter wrote this story. CEO hires ex fetish porn star wife to train the under twenties. And they pulled the most horrific images off my Facebook and put it on a cover to make me look like the just most scandalous, you know, raunchy, nasty girl. And, you know, the media just shredded me apart. I mean, this wound up in the sun. There was in the UK, India, Denmark, New Zealand. And what was interesting was like a year prior to this, an all blacks rugby player married a proper porn star from what I call a porn star. And the whole country's high-fiving him, you know, well mm. done, sound way mm. to go. And then here I come along and my husband gets ripped to shreds. Like, how dare you bring such an irresponsible person? She's, you know, a drug addict and an alcoholic. And even though I'd been clean and sober for four years, um, she'd been raped. They just made me out to be like this absolute piece of shit. Mm. And that was so eye-opening. But when it happened, Dave, the day before I had applied with big brother, big sister, which is an organization that mentors teenagers. And I, I was still determined to mentor teenage girls and still live that dream, you know? And, um, the next day the story broke, uh, the whole country, you know, shut down shortly after, cause it was Christmas, but I was still in the media, you know, I was on the front page of the Sydney morning Herald with a little black box over my titties and the porn scandal. And I'm like, Oh my God. God, this is ridiculous. Like the media is so powerful. You know, these outside influences that influence us as we're going through recovery. But because by this point I'd worked the steps, I, you know, I was okay with what they were saying. You know, you could call me a sheep effort if you wanted to. I know at the end of the day, I haven't effed any sheep, right? So what bothered me though, was when big brother, big sister called me and they said, Hey, we got your application and I'd forgotten all about it because it was a month later. And they said, you know, um, sounds like you're doing great things, but unfortunately we can't work with you. If, if, you know, um, a mentor, you can see what you've been doing in the news and even telling this story, it, it makes me emotional because it was like the most devastating blow yeah, in the world that. because I thought that's what I was supposed to be doing with the rest of my life. And, you know, it was like someone, finally then recognized, yeah, I am a piece of shit. I am a horrible person. I have done really bad things and I don't deserve to work with kids. Like that. I mean, you might as well put me on the child sex offender list. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that sounds horrible. And I sat involved and cried my heart out for a good 20 minutes. And then I had a God shot and, uh, I had one of those moments, a burning bush moment, if you will, where all of a sudden the word, no flash in front of me. And it was like, God, whoever that might be to you and to whoever's listening, because that word really tripped me up in early days. You know, I was like, get out of here with that backdoor Jesus bullshit. I've been there. I'm not doing it, you know? So I really struggled with that, but, um, God, uh, good orderly direction, if you will, mother nature, what have you spirit of the universe, I believe gave me that message. And what came through was no, 
I'm not going to let somebody tell me how I'm going to live my life. And I'm going to create a program ran by people who've been there and done that and not just talk the talk, but walk the fucking walk. Mm. And I did. And I sat at my kitchen table for nine months and I created a program for teenage girls to teach them the five habits, lessons, and principles that lead to the development of self-love. And then in turn, create a sisterhood and create this awesome program, which was called Camp Confidence. And we did that. We did that. And we did it for two years and we had 62 graduates. And I mean, these girls are actively cutting themselves because they think they're fat and ugly and not good enough. You know, and thank God I didn't have social media and we didn't have to deal with the bullying that comes with what these kids are going through today. You know, it is 10,000 times worse. You know, we think, gosh, because we're just subjected to seeing ads in a magazine, right? Or on a billboard or on a TV, which we could walk away from and we are not glued to. And now we've got these phones that are constantly in our hands and these and kids are on iPads learning in schools. And like now, even with the pandemic, they're remote learning, just access to everything and nothing is um, it's the wild west, mm. you know, between the apps and Facetune and the shit that you can do with it. Now you can't decipher between what's real and what's not, Yeah, you know, it's, it's shocking. So all of this stuff around body image, you know, I was, able to take what was that number one driving surface force. Cause really when you get down to it, like you said, below that, it was anger at the world. You know, it was abandonment. It was, it was undealt with rage. Right. Cause when I get drunk, I'm and I mean, I, I raged, I would throw refrigerators through windows. You know, I've wrecked five Hondas, including a motorcycle. Um, I, wow, just so, so violent. But that surface thing that I always thought it was, was body image, you know, cause that's what I was able to try and control from the very beginning. Right. So, um, but taking that, you know, and then having camp confidence and, um, after two years, one of my partners got pregnant and in the downtime we said, right, how do we take this vision and mission and roll it out to the world? Cause I was starting to realize it wasn't just teenage girls that needed to hear this message. It was, it was the moms as well, you know? And so we created the brand that I run today, um, Girl Clothing, and took this thing that I wrote for Camp Confidence called The Pledge. And so I solemnly swear to the best of my ability to refrain from talking negatively about myself as well as other girls. I am an equal amongst my peers, and I do not see myself as neither better than nor less than. Through this pledge of non-judgment, I understand and embrace that I'm having a positive impact on the world and furthering the global revolution of body acceptance. And these girls would take this pledge and they would give each other this shitty little cyan, live strong, silicone band, right? Yeah, That's a camp yeah. confidence. And when they saw each other from different camps out on the street, they knew straight away that that wasn't their competition and that was their sister, you know? Because yeah. all of these things I'm pulling from recovery, yeah, right? United we stand, principles before personalities, you know, camp confidence, I'd call AA, kind of reminded me of. Um, I mean, KK would remind me of AA, like this concept of sharing um, openly and from the heart and anonymity, all these things that we learn in, in recovery, you know, just transformed over into what we were doing here. And so when it came time to create this new brand, that became the, the central point of girl. And so that's now on all of our hang tags and the silicone band now are like leggings or a shirt 
you know, and so it's this, it, it's just become more amplified. And, you know, whilst it was happening, I was like, I'm failing when I was running camp confidence. Cause I thought president Obama should have called me cause he was in office at the time. And I'm like, man, why hasn't president Obama called me? I must, I'm not doing this right. <laughs> you know, Hey Courtney, I hear what you're doing out there in Australia. I'd love to bring this to the United States and roll it out for the entire country. Like, bitch, please. Who do you think you are? You know, I had not addressed my ego. Come on. But that being said, because of what I've learned in recovery, you know, I turned it over to a higher power again, whoever that might be. And I just kept showing up and saying, Hey, can you just fucking guide me and direct me, please? That's what my prayer sounds like. You know, a lot of, we all have different ways to do it and there's no wrong way to do it. But I just straight up like, you know, this is what's up. Can you please can help me out. And, um, that eventually has turned into girl. And I, I say that's because I stopped trying to control the outcomes of everything, you know, all the minuscule details. And I just focused on the bigger overarching goal, which is to empower women and girls to accept their body and to then create a global sisterhood. And so the logos look very different. The the methodology looked very different. The delivery looked very different. It's not 12 teenage girls in a tiny corner of Australia every other weekend spilling out their guts and learning shit has now become a clothing line, which is yeah. not something I'm excited about. <laughs> I hate clothes. That's why I'm not wearing pants. But, um, you know, because of recovery, this is what I have today. And it's fascinating because I have a life beyond my wildest dreams, as we often do say around the rooms, you know. Um, I have everything I could have ever hoped for, but yeah, there are still days half the time where it's not enough or it's too much or, you know what I'm saying? So it's not like we get clean and sober and we're like, yeah, life is perfect now. Everything's great. You know, it's like, no, it's still a, it's still a daily thing. Like, and if I went every day and, and did like active recovery work, you know, life would, would be a lot brighter, but I still fight it. I still fight it. I know after I get back from a meeting or doing service, I'm going to feel phenomenal. It's very rare that I've ever left a meeting feeling worse, maybe two out of 2000 times, but I, I all still the addict and alcoholic in me, same thing is like, uh, you know, you're fine. Right. Cause we're, I'm still self-centered. And it's like, no, bitch, you go to share the message that we do recover and great things can happen, you know? So it's super important to stay connected and to stay around people like yourself and to find those that you click with. It really is, honestly, we- because I sit in this office now. I mean, my job I had before was I was always out and about meeting people. And this was before I became sober, you know? And now I spend a lot of time in the office and I can feel it in the corner looking at me. Yeah. Whether you yeah. call it the beer monster or the wine witch or whatever it's, st- and I'm always aware it's around me. And sometimes it blindsides me because I can be at- actually in a really, really good place with my sobriety and think, do you know what? I'm smashing this. And that's sometimes a dangerous place to be because you totally. become complacent then and yeah. it creep up behind you and tap you on the shoulder and you're like, whoa, where has that come from? And that's where you have to use your tools that you've learned through recovery to actually really dig your feet down and think, oh, okay, (laughs) I need to learn from this message. You know what I mean? Totally. And that's, you're so right. It's always like, okay, well, what's the message? What's the message? Right. It's always something like, why am I not comfortable in my own skin? Or, you know, for example, right now, it's like I hadn't slept 
you know, this perimenopause thing is no joke, truly. Um, like I want a refund. I thought being a woman was going to, it's supposed to get easier as you get older. <laughs> it does. It's great. I'm aging like a fine wine. Not you look amazing, wine. honestly. And do you know what? I, when I met you, right, I'm very sensitive, right? I'm really hypersensitive. And what I got from you was I sensed anger in you somewhere. I sensed incredible sensitivity and a beautiful person. And I'm not just saying that when you left me that day, and I know we had a laugh in that little street and you dared me to take my jeans down and compare calves and that. But, you know, on the train journey home, I thought, yeah. you know what? What an absolutely lovely, lovely person I've just met, you know. And I find in our community, for what we go through, and we come out the other side, so many people are so humble. And I've said it on here before, but it's true, isn't it? Look at Lee and Sean yeah. from What Sober. You met them as well that day. And they're so gentle, absolute gentlemen, you know, like really oh. humble and do anything. And that's what I love about this community. Yeah. Thank you. It means a lot to me. And that trips me out. You might be a bit psychic. <laughs> I think you just read me like they read people on RuPaul. I'm, yeah, definitely. Um, very, you know, as much as I seem secure, I still am working through that part of, I think my next program will be CODA, you know, codependent anonymous and, and mm. not seeking that outside validation. It's gotten a lot easier. Yeah. You know, but social media has not helped. And if I could get off of it, but unfortunately, you know, when you've got a memoir and an app that you just launched and a clothing line and, you know, you're, you run an online business, it's like, oh, you got to play the game. Yeah. And I know that there's good nuggets and stuff to share and there's a lot of great things about it, but I still catch myself as a grown ass woman who has a ton of self-awareness getting upset because not enough, you know, not enough people saw my video or, you know, crazy. my engagement is down. Yeah. Or it's I look crazy. We're guilty of it. Yeah. <laughs> it blows me away. And then all of a sudden after five minutes of death scrolling, I'm like, wow, why am I in such a foul mood right now? Yeah. Uh, it, it's shocking. Like it, it, it really blows my mind, you know, and financial insecurity, that's another big one that we take with us. And that's something that I'm constantly like in that hustle mode where it's, I never have enough. And mm -hmm. I mean, I've done subconscious psychology, psych K courses, you know, accessing your subconscious and all these kinds of things. And it's a, it's a forever journey, you know, but again, having self-awareness, learning the tools, um, staying connected and, making a conscious decision to do something with your life and not be a victim. I think that was the biggest thing for me was saying, you know, I can either sit here and continue to feel sorry for myself and live in that identity of KO, yeah. or I can be done with that yeah. and transform and turn, as some people say, my mess into a message and um, just, just live that life. And, you know, some days my recovery is, is on point and some days it's not, and it's totally fine. As long as we don't pick up, you know, cause yeah. I get and naked and punch people and I will steal your keys to your car and try and fuck your wife, Dave. It'd be all bad. <laughs> well, what I was going to say to you actually is like when you um, said earlier on in the podcast about um, being a people pleaser, I think yeah. a lot of uh, addicts are, uh, and it's no, yeah surprised that you were 
um, when you tell us about your childhood and whatever, uh, and the attachment issues, you know, it's it's unsettling to say the least. And then you go on for external validation, what you say about, you know, this is deep rooted stuff here. This isn't surfing stuff. It goes a lot deeper than no one liking your post or seeing your videos. It goes a lot deeper. Oh, it brings up stuff from the child, you know, the the attachment issues that I can relate to you as well, right? Um, 100%. And it's, I think what we need to do is, human beings is to when we say about acceptance it's about accepting ourselves it's for you know i'm sure everyone listening to this would go oh my god what an absolutely incredible woman right and it's for you to say that to yourself and believe it and you know it's the acceptance of yeah the message yeah. You're, you're putting out but to yourself how you've turned your life around now is unbelievable honestly and uh mm-hmm. I, I was writing a book and i'm gonna throw it away now because listening to your story it's blown me away you know like and my story is nothing but it you know we've all got no. a story we've all got a story exactly. and um, really it, it's fantastic and you know i generally try and keep these to around an hour and i could talk to you for another two hours i know right <laughs> yeah but do you want to just tell us a little bit about your book because i'll be ordering it straight after this believe me so if you could just give me a brief Aww. of that thanks buddy i uh yeah I, you know i started out writing it 10 years ago when i got married and got out of the muscle fetish industry. Cause again, that was my sole purpose was I wanted women to know that what they hated about their body, somebody out there was, would pay for it. You know, whether you got saggy tits, no tits, I mean, you hate your feet, your wide feet, somebody out there, some man is drooling over it, you know? And I just thought that was so profound, but what I didn't realize was that my story was just starting you know, I was just, was just really starting out. So it's just, it's a memoir and it, you know, I go into the whole chapter eight, uh, is about how I started smashing watermelons between my legs, you know, yeah. cause I'm sure a lot of our listeners have seen that. Oh, uh, and, well, um, that hold on you. you know, what's really funny. Literally a week ago, I got an email from Guinness book of world records. And because I did it in conjunction with our store opening. And so I had an affiliation with the brand as disqualified. So oh. it disqualified me. Yeah. So technically yes. And if you look at the news, then yes. I, I'm the world record holder, um, but they officially said it doesn't count. So uh, Do again. again, when I got that, yeah, I was a bit of a blow. I was like, whatever. But at the end of the day, it's like, I'm the one that started this shit. And I, no. you know, my ego, when I see other women do it and I'm like, bitch, you didn't tag me. What? You know, I get all bent out of shape and shit. It's so funny. It cracks me up, man. Um, but yeah, so that whole story. And, you know, I had this guy, so these guys would pay me $400 an hour to do all sorts of random things. Like, so it was like sex work, but without sex. And it's hard to believe because so many of us, I didn't know a thing about it. And you're like, what do you mean? Guys will pay you $300, $400 to like rub your feet and to worship them. Like what, what, how's that even possible? Or there's guys that find biceps more attractive than a pair of giant boobs. Right. And, and how we've made sex in the United States and in the Western world to be so taboo. And like, why would that even need to be, why, why do we even call that a fetish? 
Like if you guys were all into the same thing, like Jessica Simpson, we want to procreate. You know Mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Like you love, there are guys who love hairy armpits. Like I would get paid $400 to sweat in a sports bra, grow out my armpit hair, overnight it to the kingdom of Bahrain and take pictures of my armpits. Like people find beauty in all sorts of different things. Do you know what, darling? Over here, and it's it's growing like the clappers, Sober Dave (laughs) Pants, right? Uh, Everyone's got this fetish about Sober Dave Pants. So it's a brand. You've got your brand, like, it's huge. I'm going to launch my own collection of Sober Dave Pants. (laughs) Like a Superman symbol in the front. Oh my god! SD, you know. If you need, if you need help with the, some design work, give yeah. me a holler. Yeah, you're so yeah, funny. PR be good, darling. But let's wrap this yeah. up then. Let's talk about yeah. what's next for you. What's what's going to be next? So what's going to be next? You know, like I said, the clothing aspect is not something that excites me. I I love what I the mission and vision, right? But I'm not a fashionista, and um. I, my next step in the future are going to be, um, being a site K instructor. And so I really want to get this modality and help get it out to the world because it's so important, you know, and we, we have the power within ourselves to immediately change beliefs and transform stress and get messages from the universe. And it's a, a quite a remarkable thing. And, you know, I want to see police officers, teachers, you know, guidance counselors have this in their back pocket. And um, there's very few instructors around the world because the man who originated the content is very protective of it. And he's, he's remarkable. Um, so those will be my next steps. And I, you know, doing sessions online um, and then really just helping people with their fitness journey and focusing on what their body can do and not what their body looks like. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'll always be a part of girl and that will always be my baby. Yeah. But my next steps are to give people tools to transcend, not just put on a pair of leggings. Like even though women put on our leggings, because we don't use sizes, we use um, athletes' names and body types. And even just letting go of that stigma is yeah, a huge yeah. fucking step for women, you know? Yeah. So they put that on, but then what's next, right? Yeah. It's like, okay, we need to dig a little deeper. Like, all right, let's start addressing subconscious beliefs and so on and so forth. So I see myself... I keep buying these courses, Dave, and I keep waiting to like wake up and be Tony Robbins or Mel Robbins. It hasn't happened yet, but I see myself in giant ass amphitheaters talking to women and teaching them how to crush a watermelon between their legs and using that, writing their most limiting belief on it, you know, and, um, teaching seminars and and doing these psych um, basic workshops around the world. That's what my, my next, my next goal All I can say about that is that you don't need to be anyone but yourself. Because, yeah. uh, you know, you are Courtney Olsen. You don't need to be a, a Tony Robbins. You are a force. <laughs> but one well, of the lovely forces I've honestly met, honestly. I mean, and even talking to you now, I've got such a lovely, warm feeling, us connecting. I know the listeners can't see you, but the transference between you and me is just absolutely lovely and i think you're amazing honestly i appreciate that mate all we are is energy so um, i absolutely agree with you yeah so thank you very much for bringing me on it's been wonderful talking with you and you darling next time you're in london give me a shout and we'll drop our drawers again rip our trousers off (laughs) (laughs) hell yeah sounds good baby all right (laughs) you have a lovely day corny thank you so much Thank you. Bye. Bye. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of One for the Road. 
please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can now download my app, Sober Dave, on the Apple and Google Play Store. And on there, you will find lots of tutorials, tips and support to help you stop drinking. And there are also meditation audios, food plans and chat forums. You can also find me on Instagram at Sober Dave. Please remember to join me for next week's episode. But until then, thanks for listening and have a great week.